you're listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. Coming up on today's show, the Jackson Hole Travel and Tourism Board is spearheading an effort to sustainably manage tourism in the Tetons, and they want help from locals. This isn't just going to be a plan that sits on the shelf that we could say we point to, we check the box, and we're going to continue as business as usual. Plus, a conversation with Northern Arapaho contemporary artist Robert Martinez of Riverton. Our stories have been told by so many other people from their non-Native perspective. We deserve to have our stories told by us. But first, a new report sheds light on just how severe the housing crisis is in the greater Jackson region. KHOL's Will Walkie has the story. 5,300. That's the number of housing units needed in the Teton region to address the current crisis of affordability for local residents. It's a mammoth problem that's been here for a long time, but gotten much worse since the pandemic began. Housing prices are up a lot. Housing supply can't get much lower. And then housing costs too much for the majority of people making their living in the region. Wendy Sullivan is a consultant who presented the results of the recent regional housing needs assessment to Wyoming and Idaho elected officials Monday. She provided mountains of data supporting what a lot of folks already know. If you earn your money locally, buying a home is likely out of reach. Take the purchasing market. The assessment found that someone who makes $60,000 a year would need to make eight times that to afford the average price of a home sold in 2021. We see that about 81% of your households earn under 200% of the area median income. When we compare that to for sale listings, we see that 83% of for sale listings are priced for households earning over 200%. Again, this just illustrates the imbalance. Rental rates are increasing slightly slower, but still, they're up at a faster clip than the wages in the area. A total of around 3,500 people from Teton County, Wyoming, Teton County, Idaho, and northern Lincoln County, Wyoming, were surveyed for the assessment. And of the renters studied, about half had to move twice in the past three years, often due to price increases. All of these areas are pretty much pretty close to a 0% vacancy rate, meaning that people looking to come to your area or to fill jobs just can't find a unit, and or those who want to or need to move into a different unit can't do the same either. And if you work for the main industry in town, tourism and hospitality, you're not even close to making enough to compete with demand from remote workers and out-of-town retirees. Enter the region's twin crisis, a major labor shortage. Sullivan says jobs in the Teton region have grown at more than double the rate of housing units since 2010. You're sitting at about 15 to 19 percent of your jobs being unfilled, which is huge. By being understaffed, about a third of your businesses have reduced hours or services. This includes essential services as well as being able to get your coffee around the corner. And while these trends are most acute in the town of Jackson, these problems have already expanded to historically commuter communities and are creating new issues there. 13% of Teton County, Wyoming workers come from over the pass in Teton County, Idaho, and 9% come from Lincoln County. This equates to about 75 million vehicle miles traveled per year. So obviously those are impacts on the ecosystem, on the environment, 
And each of these households are spending anywhere from six to $10,000 per year um, just to commute. Despite their staggering nature, the study's findings appear sadly unsurprising for elected officials. Now, the question is, what can they do about it? We know the number of units needed, again, 5,300, but who's going to build them and how? Sullivan says significant government investment, not private development, is necessary to offset the high cost of building here. Just adding volume is not necessarily going to get you the affordable prices you need for people making their living there. A lot of those, that volume will go to owners outside of your area. So this means that when you're focusing, you need to look not only on volume, but also on price point and type of product and who it is you're specifically serving. But that's a daunting task, to say the least. Some quick math shows that the price tag to fix the housing crisis here is over 2.2 billion big ones. That's 25 years of the entire annual budget of Teton County, Wyoming, and the town of Jackson. But Willa Williford, another consultant who worked on this project, says it doesn't all have to fall on government officials. Raising wages, for example, can also help. So there's all the things we try to do to make the, the gap smaller, and then there's also just the nut we need to crack around bringing more funds and more capital to, to serve the people we want to. Williford also says there needs to be more regional collaboration and just better organization in general from the various local housing authorities. Teton, Wyoming is very much poised as the job center, the population center, and the longest standing player in the housing game to be a leader in that space. For now, at least the community is armed with more data, 230 pages of it. Another housing study specific to Teton County, Wyoming, is also expected to come out in April, and officials hope to start creating an action plan as soon as this summer. Will Walkie, KHOL News. The process is underway to create a sustainable destination management plan for Jackson Hole. The goal is to refocus on managing tourism in the Tetons to protect the environment, residents' quality of life, and a sustainable local economy. KHOL's Kyle Mackey spoke to Krista Valentino, a member of the Jackson Hole Travel and Tourism Board and chair of the board's sustainability committee, ahead of two community engagement meetings coming up on March 15th and 16th. Krista, thank you so much for joining us today on KHOL. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Uh, so let's talk about the need identified for a sustainable destination management plan for Jackson. Can you tell us about how this all got started? Definitely. So this is a conversation that started actually about three years ago in early 2018, when we realized that we wanted to shift as a board more on looking at how to educate visitors on coming here, mitigate the impacts of tourism, and really focus on the quality of visitor that we were attracting versus just trying to promote the, uh, Jackson as a destination. And so we began those conversations um, in 2018. And then, as we all know, um, we went through a pandemic. We saw the highest rates of tourism year over year that we've ever seen and continue to see that and know that now is 
as important as ever to reconsider how it is that we go about managing and mitigating those impacts of tourism so that we use tourism as an enabling factor for our community versus um, a burden or something that hinders our community and, and way of life. Okay, so can you give us an overview of where are we in this process now? We started the destination sustainable destination management plan process um, about six months ago, so mid-2021, and we brought on a consulting team of George Washington University and Confluence Sustainability, and then the Jacksonville Travel and Tourism Board also contracted a consultant through the River Wind Foundation. That whole process began last summer, and then we've really have dove into the whole process every step of the way, such as uh, developing a situational analysis, developing a, a visitor sentiment survey that has actually just gone out to the community. And we're also gearing up for these public workshops from March 14th to 18th. You mentioned George Washington University, and I just want to disclose I'm a GW alum, um, have no connection to the <laughs> tourism at the Institute of Tourism Studies. Um, I'm also from a tourist destination myself. I'm from Cooperstown, New York, which has a different situation than Jackson, but they are both small towns and get insanely crowded in the summer. Cooperstown is the home of baseball. The Baseball Hall of Fame is there. So even though I've only been in the Tetons a little over a year myself, I understand this kind of love-hate relationship that residents of these small destination communities sometimes have with tourism. Um, so I wanted to ask you to kind of give your your best pitch to local residents to get involved with this process if maybe they fall on the more jaded end of the spectrum. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. There is this love-hate relationship that I think a lot of our community feels. And so many of our jobs and our economy and our livelihoods do hinge on people coming to Jackson, especially um, year round, as much as we also, as much as we love having off seasons, we also have to recognize that having sustainable or long-term sustainable thriving businesses also need to know that they're going to make money in in the off time as well. So it's, it is this really um, high tension uh, conversation that I know many people I've talked to really struggle with, especially so many people who work in the tourism, hospitality and tourism industries, right? And then go out and see their favorite powder stash poached or their favorite trails being overrun with people. And so my best pitch is that we're all trying to find a way to share our voice and make a difference in this community, have an influence over what the future looks like, whether that's for one season from now or whether that's 10 years from now when we're talking about raising the next generation or your children or whomever. And this is really going to be that process that allows you to have your voice in it. This isn't just going to be a plan that sits on the shelf that we could say we point to, we check the box, and we're going to continue as business as usual. My plea, my ask is if you feel pressure, if you also don't, if you think that tourism is great and you rely on it and you don't want us to start promoting or, or doing things differently because your livelihood depends on this demographic that are coming in, tell us that. Let us hear it. Come to the community workshops submit your surveys, tell your friends to, if you have an opinion, do something about it. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what the board's vision 
of success would look like, you know, for sustainably managing tourism in Jackson Hole? What are some of the things you think about? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think success for many of the board members is going to look different depending on who you ask. But an overall vision of success really includes balance. And that is the balance of ecosystem stewardship. That's the balance of having a vibrant economy, of managing growth of tourism and of our community in general, and also balancing and making sure that we focus on the quality of life for residents. And that's not just sustaining it or or keeping it status quo, but enhancing it. All right, great. Well, Krista, thank you so much for joining us today on KHOL. Thank you for having me. More information, including the survey for residents to take about tourism, is available at visitjacksonhole.com slash locals. You can also hear an extended version of that conversation on our website, coming soon at 891khol.org. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming up next is a story from our friends at KOTO in Telluride, which, like Jackson and many other mountain towns, is facing, you guessed it, a housing crisis. Soaring prices and limited housing stock are making it difficult for many folks to find a place to call home. But this winter, Telluride is trying something new to help. Julia Caulfield reports. In summer, Telluride's town park is home to music festivals, softball games, lazy days in the sun. Winter brings a sledding hill Nordic skiing, and this year, housing. All right, so we're in um, the town park parking lot. This is my bus. I call it Just Some Bus. That's Simon Perkovich. This winter, he's living in his bus in Town Park's parking lot, although he sees his bus as much more than a home. It has a deck that folds down to be a like a, a performing platform. It's painted with chalkboard paint, so you can draw on any surface of it. It's uh, meant to be like a kind of perfect COVID mobile, like you could... Um, drive it to a cul-de-sac and set up a show and, um, you know, do theater while we can't gather indoors. Perkovich is living in Town Park as part of a pilot program to provide RV housing for the winter. The town of Telluride is providing nine parking spaces for residents to live in their trailer, mobile home, RV, or vehicle. Telluride Town Council member Dan Enright helped push the program forward. He first heard the idea before he was on council and a member of the Planning and Zoning Commission. This was the one that really uh, caught my attention and felt uh, the most immediately accessible, the most uh, available to be able to uh, bring housing this season. Enright notes the town of Telluride has other housing projects in the works, but those are months, if not years, down the road. Telluride Town Council approved the program for this winter last fall, with tenants moving in mid-November. This winter, the program is housing 12 individuals, paying $300 per month in rent. 
Walk inside, and just some bus is a modest affair. So it's pretty simple in here. I built most of it. Uh, it's pretty much just a bed and some storage boxes, some shelving. Um, the town park gives us uh, electrical outlets, so I've got two heaters running. That's how it keeps warm in the winter. Um, you know, this close to the San Miguel and the Bear Creek. Um, and yeah, uh, you know, uh, simple stuff. It's just uh, has insulation and paneling. Um, wood floors, nothing too fancy. Perkovich uses a camping stove for cooking, although working at a restaurant also provides a lot of his meals. He uses sinks provided by the town to wash up. So far, Perkovich says the situation has been great. It has been awesome. Um, it's the best form of employee housing I could think of. Um, as far as like affordability, uh, through like like after one month of working here, I saved up enough to pay off my whole season here. That I I've ne that's something I would never have dreamed of in Telluride. Perkovich was born and raised in Telluride. He bought his bus at the beginning of COVID, built it out, and drove it to Pittsburgh, where he was finishing university. He graduated, and home was calling. It's kind of linked to the Lord of the Rings. I say that hobbits always return to the Shire. I see it happen to all my friends. We all went to Boulder, and we all come back. He says the housing in Town Park hit at just the right moment. I was figuring I would um, park this back in Norwood and kind of do a little half Telluride, half Norwood gig. But, um... Uh, when I graduated, it just so happened that Telluride was doing the acceptance of uh, RVs in Town Park. And I thought, since I've been living in an RV, I really should capitalize on that. Both Enright and Perkovich acknowledge allowing RVs or buses to stay in Town Park isn't the silver bullet to housing in the community. They add, in essence, it's legalizing what some are already doing. It's a good stab at community housing, at employee housing. Um... I do know a lot of friends who are interested in this kind of thing and have, you know, um, even have rigs, but uh, reserve it for camping and other such stuff because it's kind of it's somewhat illegal to sleep in a car. Enright adds it's a sign of the time for the region. It speaks to the the, the needs of our community that we'd, we'd even consider something so uh, outside the norm uh, to address our, our housing crisis. Come April, the individuals living in Town Park will be headed down the road in search of the next housing opportunity. The housing crisis will not disappear. But for the moment, snuggled up against the San Miguel River, a line of RVs, buses, and vans called Town Park home. For KOTL Radio, I'm Julia Caulfield. Contemporary artist Robert Martinez grew up on Wyoming's Wind River Indian Reservation. His work combines historical imagery of the American West and the Northern Arapaho tribe, which he's a member of. Next, K-12 Music and Community Affairs Director Jack Catlin spoke to Martinez ahead of his recent live painting demonstration at the National Museum of Wildlife Art in Jackson. 
contemporary Arapaho artist Robert Martinez's native heritage remains a constant source of inspiration for his work. His paintings and drawings have been shown across the country and have received critical acclaim, including Wyoming's highest award for the arts, the Wyoming Governor's Art Award. Where did your passion for art originally come from? I was one of those kids who got in trouble for drawing with crayons on the walls and then later on got in some big trouble spray painting on walls. So I've always been creative, but I think I started thinking about it more serious when I was a young teenager. I tell this story all the time and I can't remember exactly who said this to me, but they said, you know, God gives you a talent and if you don't use that talent, it's, it's like a sin. And for the life of me, I can't remember who told me that, but um, it stuck with me. So that's been uh, probably the biggest motivation. And then I had some great art teachers in uh, high school. Um, If it wasn't for them, I wouldn't have gone to art school and then had some phenomenal professors in art school. And uh, ever since then, it's just been um, doing one thing after another, but always keeping uh, art as what I wanted to do. So you've been quoted as saying that the intent of your art is to adjust our expectations on what Native and Western artwork is and to celebrate Indigenous culture and its history. How would you further describe your individual style and artistic direction? Most of the time, Native art and Native artists get kind of pigeonholed in the quote-unquote mainstream art game. So because we paint so much or create so much with our cultures in mind, and we use a lot of that imagery, we're kind of pushed to the side as, wow, there's a lot of symbols and feathers and stuff in there. And they push it to one side and put it down under, quote unquote, you know, native art. My work really tries to poke holes in that and readdress the viewer's expectation of what native art could be and also who native people are. Native people are kind of pushed to the side too. I've been in places where, where people just were like, you're you're native and you're from a reservation. Wow, I didn't think there were any Indians around, you know, anymore. And then the expectations they have of meeting native people or who we are is is totally romanticized or stereotypical. And you know, that's just due to the perpetuated stereotype in Hollywood movies and and things of that nature. So a lot of my art tends to use imageries and themes and humor to call attention to that and, and let everybody know, you know what, it's not that way. So your work features an engaging combination of elements from both the past and the present. Why is it so important to have Native representation in contemporary art? Because we have great artists. I mean, that's just a simple thing. We have great artists and our stories have been told by so many other people from their non-Native perspective. We deserve to have our stories told by us. I tend to blend a lot of past and present in my work. For example, let's say uh, a native in kind of the stereotypical pose of on the ground, but he's looking at a cell phone, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, People tend to forget us as being modern people. We're still here. We still live in this modern world. And that's what I I tried to point out in my art, that these ideals that you might have about native people are are, uh, misconstrued Mm -hmm. and not current. So can you tell us about your creative process when creating, say, a new piece? What does it take to get you from that original seed of an idea to that fully realized painting? I went to Rocky Mountain College of Art and Design in Denver, and I was uh, taught that 
way, though that process, creative process from a European perspective, which is you draw a sketch first and get your light and dark values figured out. And then you transfer that to a canvas panel. You paint the canvas and then that's your final product. But you always have this drawing. So I started doing that and I still do some of that. I do full color, bright color paintings. They're almost neon. People have said they kind of look like almost like heat vision. And those are that color because people have their first reaction is usually to think of those black and white or historical photos, the sepia tone ones of, of native people. And that kind of connotates to a dead culture or dead people. But I want to let people know that, no, we're here. So I use bright, vibrant, in-your-face colors to let you know that we're right here. We're strong. Mm-hmm. Just don't notice us, right? Well, all right, Robert. Thank you for joining me. Really appreciate it. Make sure to visit 891KHOL.org for more music, news, and culture. I'm Jack Catlin, and this is KHOL Jackson. You can also hear an extended version of that conversation on our website. Now for the weekly news roundup. Here are the headlines you might have missed this past week. The American Civil Liberties Union of Wyoming filed a federal lawsuit Monday challenging Teton County's 24-7 sobriety program. The program began in 2014, and it allows a judge to mandate breathalyzer tests twice a day every day for those awaiting trials on alcohol charges, such as driving under the influence. But communications director for the organization, Jana Farley, says that might not be constitutional. You know, we've got this idea in in our country that, you know, it's this bedrock principle of, you know, you are innocent until proven guilty. But this this program is a gross overreach of government power. The suit says the program violates the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution, which protects people from unlawful searches and seizures, as well as the 14th and Eighth Amendments. Currently, if a person is 30 minutes late or more to their daily test, they can be subject to arrest without a warrant. That's something Farley says is unnecessarily harsh. You know, arresting something, someone for being late does nothing to improve public safety. It's just simply an incredibly punitive pretrial release condition, especially for these first-time suspected offenders. In the last three months of 2021, 66 people had to provide testing under the 24-7 program. Law enforcement officials say it keeps the community safe and reduces incarceration rates. Water managers from Western Wyoming and Eastern Idaho gathered Tuesday to talk about the Snake River Reservoir System, a massive network that serves farming and recreation in the area. Last year, drought made headlines when Jackson Lake dropped to historically low levels to support interest downstream. Now, another relatively dry winter means reservoirs are currently projected to be at 60% capacity by spring, compared to 88% last year. Resources manager for the Upper Snake River Basin, Brian Stevens, says that means water will continue to be a scarce resource this coming summer and fall. There's potential, increased potential, for us to totally drain the reservoir system this year. The irrigation districts that have that water, they're entitled to that. We make those deliveries when they're called. So Jackson Lake will remain low. The Coulter Bay Marina is unlikely to open this summer, according to the Jackson Hole News and Guide, and other boat launches will also see shortened seasons. The push to expand Medicaid in Wyoming failed this legislative session. It was introduced as a budget amendment in the state Senate. 
but didn't pass due to both procedural reasons and the fact that many lawmakers are still not convinced that enlarging the federal health care program would be a good idea. But despite that setback, many advocates, including RJ Hours of the American Cancer Society's Cancer Action Network, remain hopeful. Really, overall, we're not daunted. We're not disappointed. We feel very invigorated with the momentum that we think the issue has. A poll from last fall shows that more than two-thirds of Wyomingites support expanding Medicaid, which would provide insurance coverage for an estimated 24,000 people. Our says organizations across Wyoming will continue to educate voters and lobby lawmakers in advance of next year's legislative session. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strombucket. You can help us spread the word about Jackson Unpacked by leaving a rating and review for the show in Apple Podcasts. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson.